my govanen melunin, and thanks for tuning in to Speak, Friend, and Enter Deep Lore. This is where I take the dense and mythical stories of the Silmarillion and do my best to make them more accessible so nerds and non-nerds alike can fully enjoy them. I'm Leah, and I read the books so you don't have to. Today, we're going to talk about the 11th chapter of the Silmarillion, of the Sun and Moon and the Hiding of Valinor. So, in the last few Deep Lore episodes, we've seen the light of the two trees of Valinor be destroyed by Melkor and his spider frenemy Ungoliant, and most of the Noldoran elves leaving Valinor under the somewhat manic leadership of Feanor. This chapter is about the Valar dealing with the fallout from that whole mess. The Valar hold counsel with one another throughout the night, and they mourn both the death of the trees and the marring of Feanor, of the works of Melkor, one of the most evil. For Feanor was made the mightiest in all parts of body and mind, in valor, in endurance, in beauty, in understanding, in skill, in strength, and in subtlety alike, of all the children of Iluvatar, and a bright flame was in him. Yes, the book really lists all those nine things as the things that Feanor is better at than any other mortal being. The Valar mourned the works that Feanor might have made and the glory he could have brought to Arda if only he hadn't been turned to this wicked course. A messenger tells Manwë, the king of the Valar, that Feanor has spurned them, and Manwë bows his head and weeps. When he hears Feanor's parting words that the Noldoran elves would do deeds that would live in song forever, Manwë says, so shall it be, Dear bought those songs shall be accounted, and yet shall be well bought, for the price could be no other. Thus, even as Eru spoke to us, shall beauty not before conceived be brought into Ea, and evil yet be good to have been. And Mandos, the doomsman of the Valar, and the keeper of the houses of the dead, answers, and yet remain evil. To me shall Feanor come soon. The Valar then begin to put into action all the thoughts they've had about how to redress Melkor's evil deeds. Manwë has Yavanna, the giver of fruits, and Nienna, the therapist Vala, the two who had created the two trees, to concentrate all their power of growth and healing into the trees. But Nienna's tears and Yavanna's song are unable to heal the tree's wounds. However, even as their hope fails, Telperion bears one last great silver flower, and Laurelin a single golden fruit. Yavanna takes these, and the trees die at last, where they still stand in Valinor as a memorial to their loss. But the flower and the fruit Yavanna gave to Aule, and Manwë hallowed them, and Aule and his people made vessels to hold them and preserve their radiance. These vessels the Valar gave to Varda, that they might become lamps of heaven outshining the ancient stars, and she set them to voyage upon appointed courses above the girdle of the earth from the west unto the east and to return. So the Valar blessed the final fruit and flower of the two trees of Valinor and set them in the sky to become the sun and moon. They do this because they want to light Middle-earth to hinder Melkor's evil which thrives in the dark. The Avari, the elves who did not come to Valinor, still live there. The Noldor have returned there, and the men will awaken soon. The Valar want all of them to have light. Because this is Tolkien, the sun and moon have many names. The moon is called Isil the Sheen, the Vanyar of Old, and Rana the Wayward. The sun is called Anar the Fire Golden, and Vasa the Heart of Fire that Awakens and Consumes. The Valar choose a woman from among the Maiar to guide the vessel of the sun. Aryan had been a Maya in the service of Vana the Everyung, and she had tended the golden flowers and watered them with the dew of Laurelin. They also choose a man to steer the moon, and his name is Tilian. 
He had been a hunter in the company of Orome with a silver bow. He loved silver and would often rest in the flickering light of Telperion, and he begs for the honor of tending to his final flower. Arian is the mightier of the two, and the Valar choose her because she is a spirit of fire who has never feared the heat of Laurelin. Too bright were the eyes of Arian for even the elves to look on, and leaving Valinor, she forsook the form and raiment which she had worn there, and she was as a naked flame, terrible in the fullness of her splendor. Tilian with the moon rises first, as Telperion was the elder of the trees. Middle-earth is filled with moonlight, and the elves there look up in delight, and Fingolfin, Feanor's much more rational younger half-brother, with his host begins the long march into Middle-earth by the first light of the moon. When Tilian is in the furthest east, Arian rises with the sun, and the first dawn of the sun was like a great fire upon the towers of the Pelori. The clouds of Middle-earth were kindled, and there was heard the sound of many waterfalls. Then indeed Morgoth was dismayed, and he descended into the uttermost depths of Angband and withdrew his servants, sending forth great reek and dark cloud to hide his land from the light of the day star. There is a lot of back and forth about the paths the sun and moon should take, and Varda, Queen of the Stars, eventually lands on a schedule close enough to the one that we know. Morgoth, predictably, hates these new lights, and he attacks Tilian by sending spirits of shadow after him, but Tilian is victorious in this fight. Arian does not have this trouble because Morgoth is terrified of her power, and neither he nor his servants can bear to come near her or her light. The Valar see this strife between Morgoth and Tilian and begin to fear anew for what he might do to Valinor. They refuse to engage with him in open war again, because the last time they did that, the lands and seas of Middle-earth were all upended. They won't put the elves in that kind of danger, and even more so the men, whose awakening they are expecting at any time and are even more fragile in body than the elves. The Valar remember the ruin that Morgoth made of Almarin, and they aren't willing to allow the same fate to befall Valinor. They fortify the land, and they raised up the mountain walls of the Pelori to sheer and dreadful heights east, north, and south. Their outer sides were dark and smooth without foothold or ledge, and they fell in great precipices with faces hard as glass and rose up to towers with crowns of white ice. The Calakiria, the pass within the Pelori, remains open, because the elves who still live in Valinor need the fresh air that blows over the sea from Middle-earth, and the Valar don't want to completely sunder the elves in Valinor from their kin, the Teleri, who live just outside. So they build many towers with many sentinels, as well as a watchful host, so that nothing can come through the Calakiria. The Valar then fill the seas around Valinor with shadows and bewilderment and many small islands called the Enchanted Isles. No ship may pass between them, and if a mariner should ever step foot on one of these islands, they would fall into a changeless sleep until the remaking of the world. Thus, Mandos' prophecy comes true, that the way to Valinor is shut to the Noldor, and no one will sail to Valinor until the mightiest mariner of song. That's going to be it for this episode of Speak, Friend, and Enter Deep Lore. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Those reviews really help people find the show. If you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss on the show, please email us at speakfriendpod at gmail.com. You can check out the show's Twitter at speakfriendpod for official pod stuff and visual aids, and my personal Twitter is at askistwen, that's I-S-T-W-E-N. We'll have a regular episode up in two weeks, and next month we'll have another deep lore episode about the next chapter of the Silmarillion, of Men, where we'll learn about, you guessed it, men. Until next time, Muku Torgizu Turuguskin.